0: welcome to episode 23 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast this one has come cold on the heels of episode 22 And will, in all likelihood, be followed by episode 24, although on which day that one will be released, I just can't tell you. I've run out of Q&A questions, so please do send more in. Well, I've run out of usable, safe-for-work Q&A questions anyway. And if you don't already, you should subscribe to my free weekly newsletter, which you can do at charlescwcook.com. It's a bit like this podcast, except you can't actually hear me speaking. You have to read the words on the page and imagine me speaking them. So it's a little more work overall, unless you have a friend who sounds exactly like me and who's willing to read my newsletter out to you every Sunday morning, which seems unlikely all told, but you You never know these days, do you? I want to start today's show by talking about free thinking. And in particular, about the question of free thinking as it relates to the main character in today's right-of-center politics, and arguably the main character in all of today's politics, Donald Trump. I've touched on some of these questions before on this podcast, most notably after the recent election. But I think it's important to revisit them now in the wake of Trump's recent indictment in the state of New York. Specifically, I want once again to object at length to the idea that it is impossible or undesirable or even hypocritical for Americans to separate out issues when thinking about Donald Trump. And I want to reject the idea that those who insist upon doing so, that those who separate out issues when thinking about Donald Trump, are providing cover in either direction, for the supposedly bad people within our political order. Now, last week, Donald Trump was indicted in New York State on grounds that I think, and many others think, for that matter, are incredibly flimsy. And within minutes of this indictment, All of the same old rhetorical tricks that we have seen for six or seven years raised their ugly heads. After a colleague of mine at National Review tweeted out a column he had written in which he made the argument that New York's case against Trump was substantively weak, that it was politically motivated, that it was destructive to our political norms. He received an endless stream of accusations that he was anti-anti-Trump or that he had disgraced National Review's founders or that he had, quote, shown his true colors or that his view on this particular case which is undergirded by particular facts and surrounded by particular laws, that his view was in some sense a repudiation of the now-famous National Review cover against Trump. Now, this is lunacy. It's nonsense. It's an abdication of the mind. In effect, what the people who make arguments such as these are suggesting is that there are or there ought to be just two groups in the United States. One marked pro-Trump, another marked anti-Trump, and that whichever one each of us chooses to be a part of, we must stick to its presets and momentum in every conceivable situation. Now, my contention is that free people are obliged to do no such thing. Indeed, I would stipulate that it is possible to believe the following things, as I do, to believe all of the following things, in fact, simultaneously without contradiction. Number one, that Donald Trump should not be the Republican nominee in 2024. Number two, that Donald Trump should have been impeached for his conduct following the election of 2020. Number three, that Donald Trump did indeed pay hush money to a porn star with whom he had a sexual relationship while his wife was at home with their child. Number four, that the case that has been brought against Trump in New York is based on an extremely tenuous legal theory, that it suffers from probably insurmountable statute of limitations issues, That it was brought about by a generalized desire to get Trump, that all liberal-minded people ought to find alarming, and that it will backfire in the long run and possibly in the short run as well. I think I can hold all of those thoughts in my mind at the same time. Now, you probably disagree with some of those assertions. And that's fine. It's a free country. And maybe you're right. But that's not what interests me here. What interests me here is the number of people I've heard from over the last few days who seem to believe that to hold this mixture of views is some sort of logical or personal failing, who think that is that if you dislike Donald Trump, you should be reflexively fine with anything that happens to him, and that if you're not you're not sincere in any of your other criticisms. I don't think that I am overstating the case when I insist that the survival of America as a small-l liberal nation requires us to reject that idea. It's not just that this sort of thinking inevitably leads to logical absurdities, although it does, to understand how bizarre the non-sequiturs really are, try stating one of them out loud. For example, Donald Trump should have been impeached for what he did in 2021, therefore the unrelated case against him in New York must be correct. But it's not just that. It's that this sort of thinking leads us into some pretty ugly cultural habits. It should be obvious, I would hope, But the fact that I might not like a person, or even that I might think a person is guilty of crimes A or B or C, does not give me uncircumscribed license to demand their prosecution in cases D or E or F. The cover that National Review ran in 2016 read against Trump and for the record, it referred to the primaries. It didn't say, jail Trump. It didn't say, do whatever you want to Trump. It didn't say, we don't like Trump and will always proceed from that premise irrespective of the details. And nor should it have. The clearest sign of a healthy small-L liberal society is the ability of the citizenry to distinguish between the man and the idea. Or in this instance the man and the alleged crime. Lavrenti Beria, Stalin's mass murdering enforcer, liked to say, show me the man, I'll show you the crime. As a culture, that should be the precise opposite of how we behave. That should be our inverse North Star. As a culture, we should revere the likes of John Adams who defended the British soldiers in Boston because he thought they were innocent and who was encouraged to do so by his cousin, Sam Adams, despite their growing misgivings about the presence of those soldiers in America and what they stood for. As a culture, we should cherish a system that requires all accused people to be tried on the specific facts of the case within laws that are limited in scope and that encourages the citizenry to treat each accusation as if it were discreet. As a culture, we should resist at all costs the notion of generalized or referred guilt. Now this works the other way around too. I have heard a few people say in the last week that the indictment of Donald Trump makes them more likely to vote for him. This is just the same mistake, but backwards. If it's wrong for people who intend to oppose Trump in the primary to say that ipso facto New York's case against him must be strong, then it's also wrong to say that because New York's case against Trump is weak, then one intends to support him more in the primary. The two issues are unrelated. A great deal of what is described as tribalism in our politics is actually just standard political disagreement, what Thomas Sowell calls a conflict of visions. But this one, this habit, this tendency, this is actual tribalism. And it is unbecoming of a free people or of any other people besides. My guest today is Lanhee Chen, who is the David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, and a lecturer in law at Stanford Law School, and who ran for controller of California in 2022. Lanhee, welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about California. When I was born... California was, if not, a red state. It was a red-friendly state. It' was famous for Orange County, at that point, the president of the United States. Ronald Reagan was from California, the previous Republican president who had won landslide. victories Richard Nixon was from California. George H.W. Bush won California in 1988, although not by a great margin. And now, even though California does sometimes or did sometimes elect Republican governors, it is seen very much as an archetypal blue state. What happened to it? And do you have any hope that it will move back?
1: Well, I think it's a combination of a variety of factors. First of all, I think the demographics have changed significantly. California is a much more ethnically diverse state. It is a much more diverse state with respect to socioeconomic status. Uh, There is a significant gap, for example, between people who are doing very, very, very well, not not just well, but well to an extreme, and and people who are also at the same time uh, on the other end of the spectrum in extreme poverty. The uh, demographic challenges are fueled also by a series of different political decisions that have been made over the years. Uh, let's just take the Republican Party specifically. I think the, re- the, the, the infrastructure of the Republican Party, the institutional infrastructure of the Republican Party has changed a lot. I think that in the 1980s and 1990s, there was a vibrant and strong party that that was present throughout the state. I think now you find strength in pockets, but some of that infrastructure was allowed to atrophy during the, let's call it mid to late 2000s. And some of that um, was the function of of not electing a lot of strong local officials who were Republicans. Uh, Some of it can also be traced, I think, to conversations on issues that have become really challenging. I think for Republicans around the country, immigration is a great example, uh, where a, a tough approach, particularly with respect to some toughness on border security is unpopular with some parts of the California electorate. I think it's necessary, but ultimately politically created uh, some challenges throughout our state. So the combination of demographics with politics, and I would also say that the left, the institutional left, has built its own infrastructure in California during the same time. That is an alliance between a very powerful state democratic party, And very powerful public employee labor unions, not just labor unions who represent people who, uh, you know, work every day very hard. I'm talking about unions that represent government workers by and large, uh, teachers. These unions have built an infrastructure that is almost like a second Democratic Party. They never support Republican candidates. They never support independent candidates. They support Democrats and have become part of that machinery that has allowed the Democratic Party to be remarkably successful in California. So it, it's a combination of many factors, Charlie, but I think that uh, by and large, the, the trends have only accelerated. And, and I do think to answer the rest of your question, which is can Republicans ever regain a foothold in California? There, there are two elements to that one is it's going to take some time. But second, it's going to take some intentionality, which is rebuilding the center right Republican coalition in places that you referenced, Orange County, San Diego, places where the Republican Party used to be very strong, but in fact, in recent years, has become actually quite weak.
0: You know, you are essentially describing a trend that is the exact opposite of what's happened in Florida, right? Demographic change—you had all uh, these older people come in from different parts of the United States. The collapse of the once-dominant party, the Democratic Party in the state, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, before we get onto your run for state controller in the last election cycle, let's hone in a little bit on ideas, because obviously it doesn't really matter per se whether the Republicans or the Democrats are in charge. What matters is what they do. To what extent has California, or rather the voters of California genuinely abandoned right-of-center ideas. You're describing a Republican Party that is atrophied. You're describing a set of public sector unions that are powerful. You mentioned immigration. That's an idea. That's a policy question. But are we looking at a state where the levers of power have changed fundamentally, or are we looking at a state where the regnant philosophy has changed
1: dramatically, or both? I think it's both. The manifestations of the philosophical change are in in policy differences. Uh, There's an interesting disconnect, I think, between what political elites in California want to do and what I would argue the median Californian wants to do. Uh, I think the policy elites, driven primarily by a very strong strain of progressivism throughout the state, uh, have engaged in a series of policy changes that, by some measure, are quite extreme. I mean, you look at economic policy as an example, uh, an income tax that continues to rise in some parts of the state, confiscatory, what I would argue are confiscatory taxes on property ownership. And what has that resulted in? It's resulted in a mass exodus of people from California. The funniest fight I used to get into on the campaign trail was with some people on the left who like to argue that there was not, in fact, a California exodus. They would argue time and time again until they were blue in the face that people weren't actually leaving California. The only problem with that argument is it's patently untrue. People are leaving California. They're leaving California because of some of these economic policy decisions that have been made over the years so uh, i think that there are certainly uh, philosophical differences between the california of today and yesteryear but i think that the the policy differences are very real as well not just with respect to economic policy but if you look at land management housing policy homelessness is a massive problem in california and much of that is man-made arguably um, environmental policy. I mean, you go up and down the list, energy policy, healthcare across these broad range of issues. In California, what we have found are some of the most troublesome articulations of progressivism run amok, in my view.
0: It's interesting because you're in effect describing the Curly effect, which holds that you can run a state into the ground and if the people who leave are the people who would have voted against you then you ironically enough become more powerful. Right. I mean, that's that's right. a bizarre way of looking at it but I think there's some truth to that, right?
1: Well, you got to bear in mind that the folks who are leaving are primarily in two categories and one is actually much larger than the other. So the smaller category or the smaller category in number are very high income people who are fleeing the, largely the taxation environment. And, you know, there are certainly people who fall into that category and, you know, their numbers are significant, but I wouldn't say that they're, that they're large. Now, the larger population of people who are leaving are what I would consider sort of common sense, middle-income voters and residents who are leaving the state because they can't afford to live here anymore. Or, By contrast, they could afford to live here, but the progressive woke ideology is is so pervasive in so many places that we have essentially abandoned elements of freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of free association. Those elements have become so pervasive, particularly in the larger urban parts of our state. That people have just said, listen, I've had enough of this. I want to go to a place where I can raise my kids and not feel like they're being indoctrinated every day in schools or not feel like they're being subject to having to think a certain way. And and listen, I think some of what people are responding to and reacting to in the in the Florida, California example is a flight toward places where they can live their lives in a way of their choosing. And unfortunately, in California, in many places, not all, but in many places across our state, it's becoming difficult to do that.
0: All right. Well, you haven't abandoned the state. You've stayed to fight. You ran for state controller last year. You still live in California. I looked up the results from that election, and you lost, but you lost by 10 points, whereas, for example, the Republican candidate for governor lost by 20 points. What do you put that discrepancy down to?
1: Well, a few things. First of all, we, we had, I think, the most successful uh, campaign infrastructure. Uh, you know, we managed to put together a, a very real campaign that was able to get our message out across multiple parts of the state. That allowed us to perform well in parts of the state where Republicans have not done well for a very long time. Some of your listeners might be familiar with the central coast of California that includes an area called San Luis Obispo County. This was a county that Republicans had traditionally won and as recently as 2014 had a registration advantage and now Democrats outnumber Republicans by... I think it's seven or eight percentage points. And we were we were able to win that county uh, in part because we actually waged a campaign there. We actually let people know there are very real differences in contrast between me and my then opponent. And so one was being able to put together a campaign, but two, I would argue is, you know i really focused on areas where i thought the state could do a better job of managing its, its affairs the controller is the chief fiscal officer the chief financial officer of the state it's the chief accountability officer the person who can make sure that our tax dollars are being spent as as we're told they're being spent and and these are not ideological Jobs. They shouldn't be. They really should be about who can do a better job of actually running things and bringing accountability. And the argument that I made over and over again was, listen, the rest of your state government is a bunch of Democrat progressives. You probably want someone in this role to be a check and balance on the excess. And I think that argument, that message was compelling even to some Democrats. And we got a a very significant number of crossover votes from Democrats and from independents who said, yes, I actually want someone who's going to keep an eye on what's going on, notwithstanding the fact that the rest of the state is moving in a completely different direction. And interestingly enough, I'll, I'll just end with this. My opponent, whom I ran against, a progressive Democrat, wasn't really interested in talking about accountability or the fiscal state of the state. Her focus was on social politics. It was on issues like abortion, which incidentally, the state controller has zero control over. So I find it interesting how you have these campaigns, which you would think are about issues that are relevant or pertinent to the office one seeks. But in California, perhaps as it is in other places, that did not end up being the focus of the of the campaign. So how bad is it?
0: Conservatives love to hate on California. I'm a lover of California. Not of its state government, (laughs) not of its tax rates, not of its governor, but of the state. It is the most beautiful state in the union, I think, without a shadow of a doubt. I think San Diego probably has the best weather in the world. It has all sorts of fabulous places and things to do and restaurants and amusement parks and national parks and coasts it it's a glorious glorious place and when i criticize california as so i often do I, I do it from a position of sadness how bad is it has this has this become one of those right-wing things where we just say God, california but you know actually it's it's close to being fixable or
1: is it a long way back well, it's it's fixable. It'll take a lot of time and energy, so I wouldn't say it's close to being fixed. the The reality is, you're you're right. There's a lot about California that's exceptional, uh, whether it's climate or uh, the strength of human capital we have in our state, the ingenuity and innovation of people who live here. Uh, I, I do think that our diversity, with respect to having lots of different people from different national origins and and racial and ethnic backgrounds, those are all huge positives. Uh, and and so I, I choose to live here, we'll choose to raise our kids here, and, and we have our family here because we love this state. On the other hand, it is very clear to me that the state is on the precipice of a failure of governance. And it's a failure of governance that happens when you have what I call policy sclerosis, because there is no innovation in the thinking in our state capital, sacramento you have a bunch of people who sort of look at each other and nod and agree to do the same things and by the way it's not as though you have a coalition of democrats in in sacramento who think differently from one another if you had some moderate democrats and some more progressive democrats and then some republicans you maybe you'd have some debate around these issues but it it is the ruling class of this state is predominantly far-left progressive democrats And that is the cadre of people who run the state. So when I talk about a failure of governance, it's not unique to California. When you have one party rule for a long period of time, you end up with bad results. California is part of that crisis we face in many parts of this country. So we have a governance challenge. It is a serious governance challenge. I think people are right to point out the the, the ways in which California is deficient. But at the end of the day, I see it more out of sadness as well in the sense that we're punching well below our weight as a state and could be doing so much more. All right. Final
0: question. Ten years ago, yeah, ten years ago, you proposed a flat tax. Is this still... How you see the future of the U.S. tax code? Has this changed in the interim? Do you think that the political capital that would be necessary to go after this would be better spent elsewhere? Now, I ask because I'm told all the time by people on the right that everything has changed from 10 years ago. Forget Reagan, just even the Romney campaign Ten years yeah. ago took place in a completely different universe. I'm not persuaded by this at all, but I, I hear this a lot. What's your view on that?
1: Well, when I worked for Mitt Romney in two thousand you know eleven and twelve, we proposed i wouldn't I wouldn't say it was a fully flat tax. I said it was a flatter tax. Okay. the concept of having uh, fewer brackets and a structure that was easier to understand and easier to comply with. I think that's still very attractive at a conceptual level. I think the reality is that tax policy has become, uh, like every other area of policy, probably so intractable that the likelihood of migrating toward a flatter tax structure is low at this point in time. That doesn't mean it's not desirable. And I think for all sorts of different reasons, we have one of the most difficult tax compliance regimes in the entire world in the United States. So moving to a simpler system that allows us to collect as much, if not more revenue, but to do it in a simplistic way... I think that's very attractive, and uh, that conversation will undoubtedly continue. But if you look at all of the debate over tax changes, every time they happen, it spawns a massive ideological debate. Uh, I just don't see there being a lot of common ground on this one anytime soon, which is sad to me because I think there's a lot of room for improvement, not just in our federal tax system, but certainly in many states, including California.
0: All right. I'll finish with a question I often ask: Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future?
1: I'm generally optimistic because I think that uh, there are a lot of things to be thankful for. First of all, particularly as I as I look out and I think about what we can accomplish in California specifically, but more generally, uh, I think that there are a lot of reasons why we ought to believe that the dynamism and the thoughtfulness of things I'm seeing in this country generally will prevail. Maybe not in the short run or the intermediate run, but more broadly, I am optimistic about the future of California and about the future of our country.
0: All right, Lani Chen, thank you so much for coming on the
1: podcast. Great to be with you.
0: And now it's time for the Color Supplement, which this week is with Luther Ray Abel, a man who, despite being called Luther Ray Abel, has somehow managed to avoid becoming a serial killer from the Deep South. Luther, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. I have my aspirations, but we're not there yet.
0: We haven't done one of these color segments for a while, so I just, before we start, want to make sure that you're recording in color.
2: I am, in fact.
0: Because I know where you are in the Midwest, the quadratic spacing solution needs to be more viscous than it does in Florida. Otherwise, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but otherwise the cold weather doesn't contract the tetrafastling and shimmy the wangle pins.
2: Quite right, quite right. Uh, there's a sublimation of cryogenic expansion in the trundulation flask that one has to take into account with the tri-tri <laughs> trivalve
0: adherence to the ferdiculator. And last check. Uh, Have you set up the modulation on the universal filing destructor?
2: Yes, but we do need to worry about the constipative coefficient of the second integer, uh, which has a preambulatory effect, from what I've heard. Okay.
0: Finally, then, we're lever-rotatory. Thanks for that. If I don't get this right, I get chased around the podcast by a harp, which is very unpleasant. I'm sure you've been there. Anyway, today, we're going to talk about bangers, beaters mangled old cars which you buy and then do up or at least keep going and which you've defined in a piece for national review in the past ass a vehicle one can hit with a shopping cart without much upsetting the owner so tell me luther ray abel why do you do this
2: well i've stopped running uh shopping carts into other people's vehicles uh as a matter of course because you finally meet a guy who doesn't enjoy it as much as others might. Uh, But why do I love them is because (laughs) you can actually own them. Uh, And I mean that in especially a car culture where almost always a new car is really owned by the bank. Um, And so we're running around (laughs) and running into one another with things that we don't own. And for better or for worse, uh, beaters, you buy it for five grand, you take some cash over to a guy you've never met before, and you hope he doesn't take you into his basement. Uh, there again, You hope he's not called Luther Ray Abel. <laughs> Exactly. And I do have to credit recent technological advancements on the internet, moving from Craigslist to Facebook Marketplace. You actually might know the face of the man who may or may not murder you later. Whereas on Craigslist, it was all through email. So we're, mm-hmm. we're making advancements both in wanton killing as well as used car purchasing. And I think it's for the better.
0: To qualify, a beta has how many miles on the odometer, is how old, has how many problems or different colors of paint on it? What, what's the minimum threshold that is required for a car to be a beater is it price is it distance travel is it age what's the deal
2: yeah so a beater has to be over a hundred thousand miles and as cars get more and more miles it may be more 150 or 200 though i must carve out a niche for hondas and toyotas i think they only become beaters after two hundred thousand because they're broken in at that point uh but really it comes down to is there one of those little pine trees hanging from the rearview mirror? If there isn't one, then it's not a beater. If there's one or preferably 10, which tells you that uh illegal substances were probably smoked in the vehicle, then you're rest assured in beater territory.
0: How long have you been on the beater trail? The beaten path? Oh, since the age of 16 when I purchased
2: a 1997 Buick Park Avenue, kind of like a like a police cruiser size, from my grandpa for a dollar. Uh, and the nice thing about buying a beater for a dollar is that, of course, it costs $2,000 because it's being sold to you for that figure. Because, one, the tires are all flat and you need to get it dragged out of whatever parking lot or uh, back acreage. Uh, It might be sitting in. And then, of course, mice have nested uh, where you'd prefer them not to be. So the beauty of beater buying is that you're never done opening your wallet. It's just that you don't have to open it nearly as wide as buying a new vehicle.
0: How much work does the average beater take to get into full driving form?
2: Oh, (laughs) well, if it's me buying a lot because I've fallen fall in love with the the worst of the lot, Um, older European cars uh, like the Volvo I have now, I'd say $2,000.
0: Okay, but what does that actually involve? So you bring it home or it's dragged home by some disreputable towing company and it's dumped outside of your front door and your wife says, why is there a car there? And you say, don't worry about it, I'm going to fix it up and soon I'll be able to drive it away and it won't be an eyesore anymore. What happens from that moment until you can do it? So you immediately start thinking
2: this thing may never move again. But slowly and surely you get new tires on there so that's 600 dollars right there and okay now it can roll backwards and forwards awesome at least i would purchase it with at least the engine and transmission working uh, that's not always a guarantee but cooling systems so if you've watched top gear in the past um, with jeremy clarkson and those guys the thing that kills the old cars are cooling problems and electrical gremlins So you pray that neither of those things happen, and those are the things you look into first. So if there's old, cracked rubber lines, you try to get those replaced. The battery's probably crap, so you rip that out and just slap a new one in. And then you find out that there is an electrical gremlin, so the new battery goes dead anyway. And then you're catching a ride with your wife and her car to go to Walmart and get a new battery so you can figure out where exactly the gremlin might be located. Uh, So it's it's a family event. It's a a community event. And your neighbors get to watch you in your driveway cursing at the underside of your vehicle. (laughs) But in the end, you have a 30-year-old partially rusted car that you can call your own. And I think that's beautiful.
0: So where did you pick up these skills? Is this partly because you were in the Navy and learned some engineering chops? Is this something you picked up from... A dad or grandfather? Did you work it out as you went along? Are you learning it on YouTube? Some combination of all four?
2: Yeah, so first the Navy. Uh, I became a mechanic involuntarily. A lot of things I did in the Navy involuntarily.
0: Phrasing, Luther.
2: And <laughs> I became a diesel mechanic and worked on refrigeration systems and cryogenic stuff. So I learned how to read a te- technical manual and take apart. I mean, a ship is obviously (laughs) many times larger than a car, but the basics are there. You have propulsion, you have auxiliary systems, and so you realize that the whole is composed of many smaller parts. And then, of course, YouTube. I think YouTube is probably the greatest force for good in the used car market because you can have vehicle-specific how-to guides for rebuilding the engine or replacing a mirror like everything in between it's out there and you can access it for free
0: how did you get into this most people just buy a car yes they end up indebted to the bank but you at some point thought i will look on craigslist for a car that has two hundred thousand miles on it and rebuild it myself how why
2: well to sound like a fogey which i am They just don't build them like they used to. I have the Volvo 850 because it is a literal brick and I can't buy a brick anymore. And I like the brick. So whatever I have to do, the car I have has 280,000 miles on it. The transmission shifts beautifully. The engine is going great. (laughs) We'll see if that continues. But because I want to preserve something that does not exist in the market any longer, that's why I put up with uh, the headaches and the hair pulling. It's just it's part of the deal because regulations have moved cars into a certain build that's kind of rounded and obese, really. I would equate the modern car to like a 300-pound man in spandex shorts. It's just all rolls and uh, sensory moles just spotted all over the place. I don't like them, so I don't want to buy them. And I've got five grand in the bank, so that's my budget. That's how I've looked at it.
0: In 30 years' time, do you think people will be able to do what you're doing now? I ask because cars like laptops and iPhones and many other consumer electronics are closed off, it seems. It's very difficult now to open the hood and work on a car in the way that you could in 1970.
2: Yes and no. I think the advent of 3D printing is going to go a long way to preserving, especially small plastic bits in cars that break off, especially European cars of the vintage I have had this eco sort of friendly plastic that becomes quite brittle with age. And so I think as technology advances, we're having to deal with obviously the electrification of cars, um, more complicated computer systems. But at the same time, we may be able to keep especially cars of my age and a little newer going because of what we're able to print off at home. Uh, So I don't think it's dire, but I do worry that especially the cars of today may not continue on because it's not a, a material piece that's going wrong. It's just all sorts of computer systems that no one wants to deal with.
0: How many of these cars do you have?
2: So (laughs) I've had a series. I believe I've owned nine cars in my life. And I have the Volvo, which is mine, and I work on it. And then I have my wife's car, which is a Honda Insight, which only goes to a reputable mechanic because I never want to be responsible for her not being able to get to work. So there's... (laughs) a division in the garage between what I work on and mess with, and then what has to be kept sacred and apart from my meddling.
0: When your banger that you bought when it was half dead and raised from its grave dies, is that it? I mean, are we saying here that if you can't deal with it anymore, it's finished?
2: So in Wisconsin, we have the honor of being a salted state. So what will eventually kill my car is rust. Now I can have new subframe welded on and all of that. But I purchased my car because the body is in great shape. I know one day the engine with 280,000 miles will fail. I know the transmission will ultimately fail. But I paid $4,000 for the body. And so I can pull out the transmission. I can put a a manual stick shift in. I look forward to that day because I can just keep adding parts. And Volvo and Sweden have really gone to great lengths to ensure that there are still parts out there. It just comes down to, does the actual structure hold together? Uh, So I don't see a day where any individual part failing will keep me from working on it. It'll be when there's too many holes in the floor that I just can't put my feet down anymore.
0: But you're not saying you currently have nine bangers in your position.
2: Oh, I wish, no, but no, I just have one. I owned two, two beaters at the same time and that stretched me too thin. And I have a job now, which is great because I can buy things. But on the downside, I only have about an hour a day to work on my car. And to divvy that up between two vehicles is too much uh, and requires each car is so unique that you need to have specific knowledge of the vehicle, not mixing in with that of another.
0: So, what happened to the others? You sell them on to the next uh, beta lover, or they died?
2: yeah they kind of move down uh down until they're putting around in town for someone who needs a thousand dollar car to get three miles to work and so, in that thousand dollar price range, there's all sorts of vehicles, especially in Wisconsin, where we don't have car inspections for emissions and whatnot, where you can have you know uh, no exhaust, just rust it off, whatever, leave it in the driveway. <laughs> As long as it gets you to work, it's great. And so there is demand for that, especially now because the the market is constricted so much that a $1,000 car is sought after. And you'll have 40 people message you within an hour of posting on Facebook that sort of car. Like I had a Toyota Camry with 240,000 miles that smelled like mildew it was not a good car, but it was good enough for a lot of people. So it keeps moving down until someone eventually just buys it for the parts or it gets scrapped.
0: So tell me, when you look at real estate listings, there are all of these euphemisms that people use, cozy (laughs) for small, for example. But am I right to intuit that the listings on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace for these cars are brutally honest. I mean, would you write smells like mildew if you were writing the description?
2: Yes, I think being an English major, I'd go with something like funky, uh, where <laughs> <laughs> where enough people would get what I'm, where I'm coming from on that one. But uh, yeah, especially there there are some who will try to cover up everything. When I bought the Toyota Camry, this guy had spray painted over uh, duct tape all over the car where it had been rusting through. And so there are people who will want to pretend that what they have isn't a beater. And those are kind of the the scumbags of the market, but there's all sorts. Me, like, yeah, everyone's going to hear you 10 blocks down because there's no exhaust. The transmission doesn't like going into second gear. The windshield whistles uh, between 30 and 40 miles per hour because you know what? Someone paying 850 bucks, he knows what he's going to get. So why waste everyone's time, right?
0: So you mentioned holes in the floor. What is the worst thing that's ever happened to you in a beta?
2: Uh, the worst thing that ever happened to me is driving north in Wisconsin, in the middle of a snowstorm in a Volvo that uh, the arms for the wipers had bent out. So the wipers worked. They just didn't touch the windshield. So it was snowing. Just entire snowmen were falling out of the sky, just bashing against the ground. It was, uh, it was, it was insane. And I couldn't see anything except out of the passenger side. So I was driving two hours north. And I was leaning over into the passenger seat while driving in the driver's seat and praying that the right side would not fog up and then frost up like the driver's side had. Uh, So not seeing anything, not having traction because the tires were crap, and then not knowing if the transmission would hold up in what was ice was a sobering realization that maybe I was an idiot. But I made it, so I, I'm not an idiot. I was just that good of a driver. And so I, I think about that often and reassure myself.
0: All right. Luther Ray Abel, not the serial killer. Thank you so much for joining me on the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Thank you. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guests Lanhee Chan and Luther Ray Abel. Thank you to the Volvo 850, which is apparently, literally, a brick. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to your friend who sounds like me for reading you the newsletter every week. We'll see you next time.